On this week's episode of The Average Outdoorsman, Mike and Tim talk early season bass tactics with Bassmaster Elite Pro Pat Schlopper. We also get an in-depth look at life on the tour. Good to be back in studio here. Yes, um, it is. Gearing up for the opener of Wisconsin fishing. Huge tradition. Yeah. Uh, Tim and I have gone, done it together. Uh, like Too many years to come. 15 years. Yeah, yeah, we've made a point to get together and do the opener of fishing. Yeah, uh, it's fun. We're, you, you, we're usually out targeting bass. Um, bass, yeah. I would say bass. We've tried walleyes. We're not very good yeah, at that. Yeah, we're not good at Well, we're not really good at we're bass either. We're not good either. at bass either. And that, um, uh, but we do catch a lot of beer. Catch beer. Yep. We're good uh, at that. So what we did is to try to make our opening weekend more successful is we brought a guest in. Yes, we brought in Pat Schlopper. He is a professional bass fisherman. fisherman. Yeah, and we're really excited to have him here. He uh, he currently is fishing the Bassmaster Elite Series. Bassmaster. Um, so what ba- series are you fishing? It's the Bassmaster Elite Series. Elite Series. Yeah, it's kind okay. of the, it's the highest level you can get to in the bass fishing world. Awesome. So he's he's a lot better than we are. He's a lot. Uh, he yeah. That's well. That's <laughs> obvious. Um, so yeah, we're excited. Uh, we're excited to sit down and talk with Pat. Um, first, we're, of all, and we're going to talk about a few different things. Kind of how he got his start into, you know, the tournament fishing world, and then we're gonna we're, we'll talk about that, and then we're gonna jump into fishing bass and and some techniques and what he likes to do and what he looks for as far as structure and everything like that. So we're uh, we're super super excited. Yeah. So Pat, where did you get your like start in bass fishing? Like when, when did you get that itch for bass fishing? Well, I mean, I grew up in Northern Wisconsin on a river, um, primarily fishing walleye, muskie, Northern, that kind of stuff. And then my grandparents had a house on Shell Lake, which is a natural glacial lake, clear water, a lot of smallmouth, uh, a lot of largemouth, walleye, muskie, um, so I, I fished smallmouth a, quite a bit when I was younger off the docks at my grandparents' house. Um, and that's what kind of got me intrigued in bass fishing. But we mainly as a family fished walleye, northern muskie, panfish. And then when I was in seventh grade, I met a friend of mine named Josh Pack, and he had a brother-in-law whose name was Kevin Barch, and he fished tournaments. And I started talking to Josh, started talking to Kevin, and then I kind of became obsessed with it and started fishing tournaments. Josh and I started fishing, I think, in seventh grade. We started fishing tournaments. And we, you know, didn't do great. I think one tournament on Middle McKenzie, we got third place in big fish. I think it was, I don't remember what year I still got the trophy, but <laughs> that was like the biggest thing in the world. We That's might have awesome. won three or $400. And you would have beat us, yeah, for sure. Maybe, <laughs> maybe but... Um, <laughs> That was that was kind of how it got started was with Josh and Kevin. You know, Kevin, who he passed away a few years ago um, from cancer, but he was a major mentor. I fished some tournaments with him. He was, I mean, he was a really good angler, and he definitely was the one who got me hooked on the tournament side of it and where I just started focusing 100% on bass. Uh, so it's been quite a, you know, quite a few years since I've been in the tournament, why, tournament girl. Why bass though? Like, what was it about? I mean, what love, I guess, why, why was it a bass? Why not walleye? Why not walleye? Well, why not you know, fishing? it's that once again, I kind of credit to Kevin. Well, I mean, 
growing up, like fishing on Shell Lake, even when we used to fish walleyes with slip bobbers and leeches, you'd hook a smallmouth, and that was like the highlight of the night because they fought so hard, and they're just such a cool fish. And that was kind of started. But then Kevin is still who I give a lot of the credit to because it's just a whole different world of baits and techniques and, you know, in my opinion, the bass side of it is what dominates the tournament scene and that's what I kind of became obsessed with was the competitive side of it I've always been super competitive Uh, growing up I played hockey you know pretty much my whole life into college a little bit Um, not like at the university in college but just league and stuff like that so I was always really competitive and usually a pretty decent athlete. I know my body shape doesn't say that, but <laughs> I was a pretty decent athlete, um, decent golfer, and a pretty good hockey player. So as I, you know, kind of got older and you kind of, it's harder to do that, kind you know, especially playing hockey, it's no, harder hard to on the body. compete and you got to run and lift weights and that's, and that's just not, you know, I don't do that. I would rather fishing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, and I just, I, I loved watching the shows and the old, the old tournaments and being around that circuit I started in. And, you know, cause I started, we, I fished out of an aluminum boat with a 90 horse and it really wasn't set up for tournament fishing. And all these guys had the fancy boats and, and when you beat them guys, it was really cool. And, (laughs) and, uh, that's where it all kind of started and I've just when I got into high school is when I really started to win a lot of local tournaments and then I moved down here for college in Eau Claire and kind of got into a whole different range of lakes and started fishing the Mississippi River and I started doing really well on all them lakes too whether it was Big Tech, Tech Chain, Red Cedar, Upper Long, Mississippi Um, so then I knew like well maybe I could maybe I could try to do this on a higher level. And, you know, it took me till I was 37 years old to make the leap into what I've now I'm doing. But um, that's kind of how it all started. And there's obviously a lot more that went into it. But um, bass has always just been what I've, you know, wanted to fish. And that's where the money's at. What what were you doing before you decided to make that leap of faith into a professional fisherman so I went to college down at Eau Claire and I graduated in 2006 with a degree in elementary education which is most people like well you want to do that because then you could fish well yeah that was a big part of it and at the time teaching was a highly desirable job in Wisconsin it's a lot different atmosphere than what it is now for sure it used to be great and they still have good benefits and all that but it's not anywhere near what it used to be when I was in school so when I graduated in 2006, I had already been working at Shields All Sports part-time since 2004, and I had no intentions of ever working there full-time because I had spent all, spent all this money on college degree, and I liked teaching. I, it was fun to me. Um, so after I graduated, I substitute taught in like six or seven districts around the area, like every day I could, and I enjoyed doing that. I applied to almost every job in the area that I could. And I had, I mean, almost a 4.0 grade point average, really good letters of recommendation. I was a male in the elementary education field. And I had one interview in a year and a half wow. of wow. applying for jobs. But back back then, there would be two to 400 applicants for every job. So 
it got to the point where I was like, I had to start paying back my student loans. I ha- I didn't have health insurance and Shields offered me a full-time job as the fishing manager. So I'm like, and I loved working there. Like part-time was like, Why wouldn't the, you? it yeah, was I mean, a great, yeah. I mean, I loved it. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And then with once again, did I intend on staying working there for 16 years? I didn't, but you know, like, well, you guys know because you're in there all the time. <laughs> yeah. You get it. You start working at a place like that. I mean, there's a reason that you see all the same guys working there. It's because once you get in there and you get into that, the culture that they kind of cultivate at that, that store, it's hard to leave because they treat you so well. And, oh, for sure. And it's a family working there. It's, it's great. So that's what I did up until, well, I still work there part time, but. Um, that's what I did up until I decided I wanted to try it. And they honestly were a hundred percent behind me when I decided to go try and do it. They, they're still my title sponsor. Um, and besides money, they just helped me out a lot with other things in the business and, um, they've been really good to me. So that's what I did before I decided to try to make it. And I honestly, I got pretty lucky to make it my first year trying. So yeah, it's pretty incredible. Kind of walk us through how you how you ended up making it. This, you know, like you yeah, said, how did you qualify season, for the the elite? Because there's for for those of who don't, for those of you who don't know, there's a lot of different to get on the Bassmaster series. You have to qualify. You yes. can't just like there. You can't pay money, or you have mm-hmm. to qualify like everybody else does mm-hmm. to be able to fish the elite series. So how did you get to the point where you can fish those tournaments? So there's basically two ways of doing it. There's qualifying through the Bassmaster Opens, which last year there was. I think it was two divisions, four tournaments in each division. So, and at these tournaments, there's between 200 and 250 people that fish the tournaments. And that's all the local, and there's no, like these, anybody can fish it. It's an open. All the local guys, anybody, you know, there's elite series guys, FLW or MLF guys that fish it. Like anybody who's anybody who knows that lake would show up and fish it. So there's four tournaments in each division. And the way to qualify was you either had to be in the top four in points in each division or the top four in points overall. So if you fish both divisions, you know, there was a combined points for all the tournaments or in each individual division, the top four went. So I ended up getting third in points that way. But then the other way that I actually qualified first was through the Bass Nation Championship. And that's probably the toughest way to qualify because the Bass Nation Championship, the way that works is each state has a state team. So to get onto the state team, you have to be in the top 10 in a state tournament. So like for me, I had to beat, there was 90 people that fished on the Chippewa Flowage to qualify for the 2020 state team. So that was in 2019. Like your backyard though. This uh, Chippewa Flowage is like kind of not far from where you grew up and yeah I know I got a little history up there (laughs) so um I ended up winning that tournament and qualified for the regional so once you get in the state team then you fish a regional tournament which our regional includes nine states uh so there's 90 boats there's 10 boats actually 10 boaters and 10 non-boaters so 10 pros we'll say per state and that was on Vermilion Lake in northern Minnesota. And kind of the unique thing that year was our state team, like I had some, I mean, our state team was unbelievable, the people that were on it, including Lonnie, 
Peterson okay. and Justin Rowe, Josh Miller, like guys that are great fishermen. the best people in the state of Wisconsin. Like we truly had 10 people that were at the top tier of, you know, fishing abilities in the state. So when you get to the regionals, you have to be the top guy in your state. So like I could, you could get 20th place, but as long as you beat the other nine guys from your state, then you go to the national tournament. So I ended up winning that tournament too, which was good because Lonnie got third. So if I would have got fourth, he would have went. (laughs) So I won that tournament, which then you go to nationals, which that was on Pickwick Lake. So once you get to nationals, there's one guy from each state. And then there's some other countries and other weird stuff, but it actually ended up being like 48 people um, that were at that tournament because of, you know, the COVID there was, you know, Italy and whatever other countries didn't go there. Yeah, and so Alaska that was, doesn't have anybody. Did that tournament almost not happen? Um, you know, it was talk about it, but you know, depending upon which city you go to, some of them really, you know, like Florence, Alabama really supports, you know, they like that stuff to go there. So um, they're really, I don't remember there being a whole lot of talk about them changing it, but they were still pushing pretty hard. To they, have the they, they were because they you do. don't want to get behind on that. And the thing is with, with that nation, it's not like, you know, it's a two year process yeah. and it's a two year process that you cannot mess up. You can't sure. like, I, I, I keep bringing Lonnie up, but you know, he got third in that tournament and he didn't get to go. And someone that got you know, 12th got to go because he was from a, they were from a different state. You had two phenomenal anger, anglers from one state. Yeah. I mean, our, our state that last day, because the last day I think it's cut to the top. I don't know what it is, 15 or whatever it is. The last day, 20. And we had five, six, wow. seven, you know, half of our team was fishing. So, um, a lot of pressure, a lot of, a lot a lot of, pressure. of pressure, but you know, I, a lot of competition. I had, it was, but I put in a lot of work. Lonnie put in a lot of work. You know, we, de- I definitely feel like we outworked everybody. That's what separated us. And we kind of worked together and helped each and other. You guys out. are good buddies, right? Yeah. I we're, mean, that, he's, that he's helps. probably one of my best friends. So, or he is one of my best friends, but, um, so, you know, I was hoping it was him or I that went, I really wanted it to be me. <laughs> and I, and honestly, honestly, I think deep down, Lonnie wanted it to be me because of what I had done when I had quit my job to go do it. Yeah. And I think deep down, he wanted me to do it, wanted me to win it. He'll never tell you that. I, I would he, say. I don't, he kind of alluded to it, but I, I don't, yeah, I don't think he'd ever straight say it because, but I think if he would have beat me, he would have felt bad and he'd have been like, oh man, you know, that was his chance. So Anyhow, I ended up winning that tournament. So once you go to nationals and it's one person per state, and then what happens there is the top three finishers go to the Bassmaster Classic, and the number one guy gets an invitation to the Elite Series. So went down to that tournament. And honestly, I didn't put a lot of emphasis on that tournament because I was doing well in the Opens. Like I was, you know, up until that point, you were I was you were make it oh I thought you know I think there was three tournaments done at that point and I was in third or fourth to the point where it's like okay the last tournament really all I need to do is catch a limit each day and I'll make it so I didn't really think about that much and then Josh Miller my buddy who has fished it before the national tournament he's like dude you gotta there's only 40 some people and like 
you can make the elites and the classic if you win that. You should maybe think about that one. So that's, I'm like, yeah, I, maybe I should. So I went down and pre-practice and um, stuff ended up panning out and I ended up winning the tournament and, you know, going to the classic now and made it the elites that way. So then after that, it's like, well, I don't really need to fish the opens anymore because what happens then is say what it did happen. Um, if I made it in points through the opens, then I double qualify and it slides down to another person. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to, I just, I don't know. You know, I felt weird about maybe taking, not that it takes away a spot, but just shifting stuff. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You're already in. Yeah. So. And I'm like, I don't know. And then I had one of my friends like, you should do it just to double qualify and it'll make you look better, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. But with all the stuff going on and, you know, that tournament on Pickwick was in October and I had started the season in January. So I was like, ready to maybe go sit in a bowl stand or maybe <laughs> hang out with my wife a little bit. Yeah. I'm and, sure she would appreciate that. And so that. I actually called the tournament department and I'm like, hey, can I get my money back for the last open on Lay Lake? You know, because I already qualified. Oh, yeah, we'll give you back your deposit, which was 800 bucks, but I then have to eat $1,000. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving up a grand. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm going to go down there and fish, and it'll be good for me to learn the different learn body of water and yeah. just go fish and no pressure. And I ended up doing good in that too and cashing a good check and qualifying that way. I got actually moved up in the standings and double qualified. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I got there. God, there's so many layers. Uh, yeah, it, it is. seems like, it's, but that's, that's awesome. From an outs like an outsider, it's – it's that's kind of the thing I would say about like getting into tournament fishing is it's a kind of um, intimidating. Like mm -hmm. if you've never thought about it and you're like, okay, well, I'm a pretty good bass fisherman. Maybe I'll try to enter some tournaments locally. I mean, there's a lot of layers that you can't just, okay, well, I'm going to do good for a couple of years and I'll go fish the bass. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, it's hard. And, and that's the thing with me. A lot of people don't realize or people that don't know me. It's like, I've been doing it a long time. Even when I was a kid in seventh grade, you know, getting beat a lot of the times that, but I started that so much earlier than these people that are getting into it. Even, you know, when they're 20, it's Tim, like Tim and I, we fished a couple of small yeah. tournaments locally around, around here. We think we were, we thought we were okay fishermen mm -hmm. Turns until out Lonnie <laughs> stomped us around a small lake. But again, one of the best fishermen. One of the best fishermen yeah, in, yeah. in Wisconsin. So, so. And he works hard at it. So that's the thing that we I, did not. I think is not understood. And especially nowadays with the YouTube, everybody's on the YouTube catching them on a Senko or whatever and making, you know, have millions of views or whatever. But it's a different deal when you're out there fishing against guys that have done it and understand what the fish are doing at certain times of the year and just know how to fish a tournament. It's way different than going out and fun fishing for the day. It's a lot different when you're out there and you have to catch them and you only have eight hours and there's 20, 30, 40 other boats trying to do the same thing. Then it's not so easy to catch a bass. Well, like you said, you were, you were at, a, at a tournament recently and you had talked to another guy and he got you off your game. Like yeah. you, you talk to people and they'll give you some, you know, I have done this before. And then mm -hmm. you start thinking about, okay, well, maybe I don't want to do what I thought I was going to do. And then you completely get off your game plan. And yep. so it's a mental game. Huge mental game. That's something that is not, talked about a lot and that is 
something a lot of these kids coming up because it's way different now than when I, you know, there was not high school fishing, college fishing when I, when I was at them ages. And now there's all these kids that are doing it, which is great. That's awesome. Great for the sport. I wish they had it when I was that age, but it's, it's, you can't teach the mental side of it. That's something you have to learn by doing the process of working your way up through the tournaments. It's, and it's not talked about very often. And I get asked about it all the time is, you know, how do you, how do you make this call during the tournament? How do you shift from doing this to doing that? How do you know when you should leave? How do you know when the fish, you know, were, aren't where you thought they were going to be? How do you know when to make that call to go look for them instead of fighting, you know, what you think you should do? Grinding. Yeah, that's all stuff that, is mental preparation and just mental experience of doing it and learning it on my own. I mean, obviously I do watch videos and all that, but you know, I don't have a huge network of people that I talk to and they told me to go fish this point with this bait. Like I don't, you know, that's, that'll only get you so far. You got to know how to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. the bait and the place yeah, may and, not, that's half the equation. Yeah, and just knowing how to make the call when to shift gears, you know, that's a huge part of it, whether it's tournament fishing or just fishing in general. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we have, you, you, Mike you, and I as, as fishermen, because you tie a bait on and there's, there's a it, lot. It should work. I'm just going to keep trying it until it does work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it doesn't pan out. Well, and it might work if you moved out. You know, if you if you moved out to eight feet of water instead of fishing four feet of water, it might work. But that's all stuff that there's so many different situations that once you get put in, or like say you guys when you got beat by Lonnie in that one tournament, well now this year if you go there, you're probably gonna be like, well crap. We know that there's fish here because we saw him catch them, so we can't do what we did. We got to figure out how to catch those fish. You know what I mean? That's the kind of stuff that over time you learn by like your successes and failures. Oh yeah. I mean, I I think you learn more from your failures than you do your successes because is that success, was that a fluke? Like, you know, sometimes you, you might go to a spot that, you know, like the locals or whatever, you fish a lot of new lakes. So you, you know, you see locals that probably watch you and they're like, well, I've fished here my whole life and I've Mm -hmm. never caught a fish there. Mm -hmm. But was that a fluke or was that is that or, where the fish are? Or last year you did great in this tournament on this lake. You go back to those same spots. Well, the fish just aren't there. Whether it's water, water temperature yeah. or you know structure on the on the bank has changed or whatever it may well, be. If it's a if it's a reservoir or a flowing lake, is the lake up or down, or mm-hmm. you know, is the river higher or lower? Or I mean, those are the things that like we're pretty blessed here in Wisconsin. A lot of the lakes we fish are natural lakes they're pretty consistent and they're you know their depth they're not going up and down like these reservoir lakes are um so we're pretty consistent in where the fish are I, obviously water temperature is different and seasonally different but fish are pretty consistent where we are so i think that's what tim and i struggle with is that we get they're into consistently a, where they're where we're, consi- yeah, where we're, they're not where we are there yeah we're, <laughs> we're consistently doing the wrong yeah, thing exactly yeah. and that's one thing that we want to talk about is like for me as a bass fisherman, if they're not in two feet of water and I'm not frogging or throwing a Senko in two feet of water, I'm or not on catching, docks or, or something. On docks, I'm not catching fish. So how do you, what are you looking at in that, you know, when you say move out to eight feet? To me, that's intimidating because I, if I'm fishing in shallow water, oh, there's a tree down, there's a good chance there might be a fish sitting underneath it. But if there's not, I, 
it's hard for me to visualize what I should be doing in that deeper water when I can't see it. So the thing you got to think about in deeper water, whether it's just offshore fishing in general, which offshore fishing doesn't mean out in 30 feet of water. It's just off the bank where there's not visible structure. The way you got to think about it is, you know, when you're going down the bank and you see that tree, that's an obvious target. Well, when you're off the bank, there's still a lot of those obvious targets. You just can't see them with your eyes. You have to use your electronics or just have the experience to know that there's a, there's a sunken tree in eight feet of water, you know, 50 yards off the bank over there. That's still the target you're looking for. You're just not doing it visually with your eyes. You're doing it with your electronics or just experience. Or just knowing, yeah, knowing the lake yep. or fishing yep. the lake I for think years. that's one of my problems too is I'm just not confident in what I'm reading on my electronics. Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, you know, whether it's being competitive in tournaments or just being successful out on the water, electronics are a huge part of the game for a big part of the season where if you look, you know, the people that do well know what they're doing with them. They don't just buy them, put them on and go fish the lily pads right. a lot of people i fish against a lot of people that do that um so yeah take the time to learn what you're looking at and then you'll get all it takes is a couple bites to get confidence in it we can we can kind of reference back to another guest we had in studio wilhelm scott wilhelm i would say for like an electronics fisherman he's one of the best and he's one of your buddies but mm -hmm. i you, you see scott's pictures on facebook and i mean every time he goes out he has a pile of crappies and mm -hmm. i don't know where he's storing them or, you know, where this, like, you know, this pond that he's got that he's stocking on <laughs> every single time he goes out. And I think it's he's a testament to, to Scott's ability to use his electronics and trust his instincts, which yeah. I guess that's kind of learned from using mm -hmm. your electronics. But I guess that's the same principles kind of go into bass fishing because, you know, almost anybody can catch a bass with a spinner bait up by lily pads. But that's kind of where you separate the, you know, the average fisherman from a, a an above average fisherman is, is when those bass move away from the lilies or when they're not in the shallows how do you target those so mm -hmm. that you know your your typical presentation let's say it's a a deeper you know a, a deeper bass what do you use like what's your typical presentation if you're gonna try to a new spot you see some some structure what would be kind of your go-to bait to try to are you using some of the same stuff that you'd use in shallow water well, in the yeah deeper water? it just all depends on what the structure is is it rock is it wood is it grass is it you know, is it a crib? What is it? You know, that's what's going to determine what you're going to throw. Is it smallmouth? Is it largemouth? So, I mean, I'd say generally if you're fishing offshore, now, we'll, once again, that's a general term, but let's say you're fishing 8 to 15 foot of water. I mean, you're going to have to have, you want to have a jig, whether it's a football jig or, you know, a standard pitching jig, oh, and you're going to want to have a crankbait. You're probably going to want to have a shaky head and maybe a drop shot. You know, those are kind of your bread and butter stuff. So obviously you could throw a big spinner bait or a few other things, but generally if I'm out fishing a deeper tournament where I'm offshore and I'm fishing rock or wood or whatever it is, that's what I'm going to have out. Crankbait, jig, you know, basically something to cover, something you can ground. move with like a crankbait, something you can slow down with like a football jig. And then something you can clean up with, like a drop shot or a shaky head. You know, if you go through and catch six fish on a crankbait and a couple on a jig, well, then you throw your shaky head out there and maybe catch one or two more. Yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, that's very general, and it it will change depending upon 
you know, if it's a, if you're fishing a grass spot, you're probably not going to throw a big crankbait in there because it's not going to work in there. Then yeah. you might have to go to a heavier jig to punch through it. There's just a are lot you, of different things. Are you using like, let's use that example. You pull up an eight to 15 feet of water and you're fishing either rocks or wood or whatever it may be. Are you throwing your crankbait first? And, I usually, and as kind of like a search bait, if you will. Yeah, I'll, depending on the structure. If there's a lot of wood, I, I won't just because it's harder to fish it through there, depending sure. on what crankbait you're throwing and what type of wood it is. If it's a tree or, or stumps, um, you can snake a, a crankbait through some of that stuff. But then if it's more of that type of structure where it's wood, then I'll throw a jig first. Okay. I'll throw a football jig. Yeah. Most of the time. It, because, and honestly, I'd rather hook them on a football jig just because they're easier to land. Yeah. Um, but it's generally that's that's what I would do, I guess. Okay. And then kind of, I, I just want to talk about, you know, we're in the state of Wisconsin. We're coming up on our, you know, our opener of fishing, uh, which is this next weekend. It would be the first weekend in May. Um, let's say you're going out on a lake, not you're not tournament fishing. How are you fishing, you know, what we, we would in Wisconsin consider early season bass? What, what are you looking for um, to target those um, those big bass. So, I mean, that's that's my favorite. Probably all well, that in the fall is probably my favorite time of year to fish. So that's when you catch your biggest fish. Like right now is when you're going to catch your biggest fish. And generally, we'll talk talking largemouth right now. You're going to be fishing shallower. You're going to be fishing mostly eight foot and less in round emerging vegetation or old vegetation, flat bays that warm up faster. Um, a lot of times you're fishing mud bottom because that warms up faster. So it depends on the lake, depends on the clarity. It's all revolves around water temperature. Now you want to find that warm water. If there's if the, you find the warmest water in the lake, most times there's going to be fish around there. Okay. Is that is that because there's just going to be more bait fish in there too? Uh, just you know, it's like just getting ready they to want spawn. to come up and get warmed up to get ready to spawn. It's all about the spawn. They want to be comfortable. They want to get their bodies adjusted to that temperature, you know, because them fish, they, they'll start to, you know, they'll start to spawn around 60 degrees is okay. when they'll start. Not Now, obviously, that'll differ, but that's usually when it starts to get to 60, 59, 60 degrees, that's when I think, okay, I could see some on beds now, potentially, depending on a few other factors. But, you know, before that, that's all they're thinking about. Is, you know, they're obviously feeding, too, because they've been pretty snag, stagnant all winter within the cold water. But um, in relation, in general, they're they're thinking about spawning and getting to where they're going to spawn. So that's the key thing is figuring out where they are. If you know where they spawn, you got to figure out where they are in route to get there. Like kind of transition, like, yep. you know, where they're out maybe deeper. Yep. And you're fishing them deeper yep. and then... And that can vary day to day. I mean, between, you know, middle of the day, beginning of the day, they'll oh, move. Yeah. They'll move huge swaths yep. of water. Yep. Just to, you know, change. Well, it, it up. won't even be huge. It'd be like so those fish you're catching up in the lily pads. Well, you might go there early in the morning when the water is cooler, and they're not there, or they're there, and they're not biting. But a lot of times, them fish will slide out to maybe four foot, where you know they're just hanging out out there until now the sun's out and water's warm now we're going to slide up in the pads and start cruising like a lot of times early in the year you'll go up shallow and you'll see them swimming around a lot of times they're hard to catch when they first get up or you know if they're up sunning themselves but yeah, that's we've what experienced that. that's what they're doing <laughs> they just you know they'll sit out 
in the little bit deeper water, and when, it, and when it starts to warm up, they'll slide up and start, you know, swimming around in the shallows, just trying to get their body warmed up. And then start feeding or... or yeah, or, and they'll feed, but it's more it's more to prepare to spawn. You know, their, okay. their bodies have to be, you know, get the eggs right. There's things that have to happen for... You know, they don't just go up and spawn when they're like, oh, I'm going to go do it. It's like they got to. 60 degrees, let's go. go. Yeah. They got to go through a process to get their their bodies prepared to, to do it. So that's what it's all about. You know, in the spring, the most important factor is water temperature. That period, you look period. for the warmest water you can yeah, find. Yeah, and there's sometimes where maybe it's this little tiny dead end dumb pocket where there's not, that might not be in there. It might be super warm, but they might not be in there. But it's, it's, it's relative to the lake you know you could go to a lake where the main body water is 46 degrees and you find a bay that's 49 there's going to be fish there you know if it's and protected. More, more likely to be active in that 49 yep. degree water yep. or what, yep. whatever it may mm-hmm. be yep when they start to sh- move up you know I, that's i love fishing them sh- shallow flat bays in the spring with a chatterbait or a swim jig or a spinnerbait or a rattle trap i just love doing it that was going to be my next question what's your typical presentation on a early spring bass in that kind of transition or in that spawning mode when the uh, when the water temp has hit what you're looking it's for? It's going to be a, a chatterbait, a spinnerbait, a, you know, a rattle trap, lipless bait, and then a jerkbait. You know, a jerkbait is something that's probably the most versatile out of them baits, maybe a rattle trap, but, you know, where you can fish that when they're really inactive too because, it, you know, you get a good jerkbait that suspends and you know what you're doing with it. You can that's very versatile you know so you can catch them in 45 degree with it you can catch them in 65 degree with it so the, if jerk bait chatter bait spinner bait swim jig what's those are all kind of interchangeable depending on upon water clarity if it's windy um just if you see a preference you almost have to have all of them out yeah and then um a rattle trap lipless bait okay almost all of those seem to be fairly fast moving moving baits. yep yeah. moving bait well, you know once again it's relative like a jerk bait you can fish slow you can fish it mm-hmm. fast but yeah you're trying to you're covering water to i mean i just think about all these scenarios whether it's on the mississippi or shatek chain where you you've been fishing out there most of the day and all of a sudden you see a shoreline where the wind's been blown into for the you know part of the day and you go go over there with a chatterbait or spinnerbait and you just catch them you just catch them all that warm water you know, is blown just in shifting that. it over there and you, and then obviously if you find an area where you're catching them or where there's fish, then you pitch around a jig or a, you know, a tube or something like that. You don't just catch them all on a moving bait and then move on. Like you'll still want to pitch to the visible cover, but generally I want to be fishing a moving bait in the spring. So if you, if you go into one of these areas and you catch two, three fish on a, on a chatterbait or, or something like that, you're going to come back through and fish that again with a di- different presentation, maybe something a little bit slower. Yeah. Just try to pick up a couple more. Yeah, or I'll slide out a little bit deeper and throw that jerk bait, or, you know, throw a jig around a little bit. Yeah. If you find an area in the spring where you get some bites, there's probably somewhat of a concentration of fish there most of the time. Now, are you... Do you prefer to target largemouth or smallmouth this time of year? It depends on the lake, and it depends on how warm the water is. I personally don't like fishing smallmouth early, early in the year where they're still out in the wintering areas. I, I've just never been really good at that. If they're out in 20, 30 feet of water in the spring, 
which is where you know a lot of them fish will winter in deeper water on our lakes. I I've never been good at doing that. Now once they get up to start moving to the flats or long tapering points, then I'd rather fish smallmouth. Okay. Most of the time, depending upon the lake, like if we're talking, you know, a tournament setting, it depends on the lake of you know what what species generally is a bigger size class. So like talking like red cedar. I'm going to fish smallmouth 99% of the time in the spring because that's what wins tournaments. That's what wins tournaments. You know, but if you go to, say, upper long, well, then it's a coin flip. You know, you might win with either one. Then it just depends on, you know, what phase they're in because a lot of times them largemouth are more, you know, drawn to that shallow water, so that might be further ahead than the smallmouth and then might be easier to target. So sure. in general, though, I I – Pre-spawn smallmouth are, that's like one of my favorite things to do. On beds, are you saying? No, not beds. I mean, I. Pre-spawn. Yeah, throwing a jerk bait, you know, throwing a rattle trap. I, yeah, spinner bait. I love, I love doing that. That's like my favorite thing. Tim and I love bed fishing, you know, fishing beds for smallmouth. That's fun. I mean, it's exciting. Everybody likes to do it because it's pretty easy. It's easy. You know, because they are aggressive and you go catch them big ones. Yeah, that's fun. Um. I like to do it in tournaments sometimes, but like I never go out and just fun fish on beds. I just don't. I've done it so much growing up, and and I just I would rather catch them before that because you're gonna get bigger ones, like way bigger ones most of the time. If you can catch them before that, you know, you get in the water in the low fifties with a jerk bait. That's when you really okay get the big boys, big gals. <laughs> That would be, yeah, we that's a technique we've never done. So that would be, you know, that's something that we'll definitely try here. I mean, water temps for us have been, are probably pretty low right now. It's been pretty chilly the last mm-hmm. you know, 10 well, days. I was just putting docks in in northern Wisconsin not too long ago, and I can tell you it's cold. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's in the 40s. Yeah, yeah, it's in the 40s. It's cold. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really good information. Um, How about, okay, you've talked cold water. What about, you know, you, you start getting into that June, July, the water temperature starting to rise into the, you know, 70s, 80 degrees. Are you starting to see a lot of those fish, whether smallmouth or, or largemouth, start to slide away from that shallow water because it's almost too warm and start going back out deeper? Or is it a, is it a hour by hour type thing? No, I mean, once again, it depends on the body of water. But generally, that time of year, that's when I'm spending the majority of my time out off the bank. That's when I'm out fishing offshore. You, there's still always fish shallow, and there still are some lakes where you can still win tournaments fishing shallow or be successful shallow. But generally, around here, once it gets past middle of June into July, I'm out off. I'm out. I'm out off the bank. Fishing some fish, sort of structure. Yeah, fishing rock or whatever it is. Because them fish out there, it's changed a little bit over the years because people are starting, you know, even now people that buy the electronics, some of them are actually taking the time to learn how to use them um, or, you know, watch where the people are fishing that are catching them. And so it's getting a little bit tougher out deeper because more people are starting to, to figure it out a little bit. But, um in the past, there was just very few people that would do it. They just, because it's hard work. It's hard work to go out and find and the, them. Like I said before, I, I really think it's intimidating. It is. Looking looking out at a lake with nothing that I can pinpoint, like yeah. that tree in the bank, like we talked about earlier, and, mm-hmm. and going, oh, yeah, there should be fish there. Yeah. 
and and just not really you know, knowing. It's hard, and it's something that I learned. I I've been doing back before the side imaging days. I was doing it. I was one of the ones. You know, I started fishing offshore when. You know, I, probably when I moved down here is when I really started doing it. Um, in the past, like growing up in northern Wisconsin, where I'm from, it was all about fishing weed lines. You know, most of the weed lines were 12 to 15 foot of water, and you just get on the weed edge and throw your jig or whatever, and that's how you caught them. But once I moved down here and started fishing with, you know, one guy in particular, we really started to dissect the offshore bite, and we figured it out. And those were the years where, like I said, hardly anybody was doing it. There was a couple other people, but we were always at the top because nobody else could figure it out or took time to figure it out because they'd go out for the day and they'd drive around for two hours and they wouldn't have a bite. And then they're like, we're going to the lily pads, show a frog. We're going to go to that tree and flip a jig because, you know, it's what you that's know. what you know and right. it's easier to do that. And you, yeah, I mean, you can see the structure. You can see what you're fishing. Yep. Like you can... It's visual. You, you can swat. You can watch your bait go into the tree. Where, like, out offshore, you know, we 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 used to people used to tease us all the time. Where, well, all you guys do is drive around. Yeah, we do. We drive around. We might go out there for eight, ten, twelve hours a day, and we're driving around for ninety nine percent of it. We might find something, take a cast, get a bite. Okay, move on. Find another spot. Is that still your approach to tournament mm -hmm. fishing? When I can fish that way, yeah you'll for pre-fishing or pre like for, let's say pre-fishing is that how you're you'll dissect the lake pre-fishing is you'll drive around and try to graph it and depends on the time of year like right now these other these tournaments i've fished so far no it's been pretty it's mostly shallow fishing so no it's all mostly been visual i mean some like fork with some offshore stuff but um you know once we get up to new york vermont then yeah it's going to be driving around in your wheelhouse yeah. kind of stuff yeah so that, Which I'm comfortable fishing super shallow too, but clearly in I mean, general, I if you're going to say this tournament is going to be one offshore fishing, say brush piles, then I'm going to be a lot happier than you know this shore's this tournament's going to be one on the shoreline fishing lily pads. And I'll be like, well, okay, I can do it, but I'd rather be out looking for that spot that no one else might find. You know, that's what it's all that's about what, that's how you win the last tournament that tim and i fished we were fishing what in the same tournament as one of pat's buddies lonnie and we were fishing pretty much similar areas we were in the same bays and tim and i were fishing the lily pads and lonnie was 75 yards from us not even i bet you he was 25 yards behind us yeah fishing one spot spot locked on one spot casting to one spot and pulled three monster bass i'm sure it was off a clump of rocks a crib something we didn't know or was something there. we didn't know it was there and i remember looking at tim turning around and saying we don't know what we're doing <laughs> that guy knows what he's doing this yeah. is we don't. this is i mean we had we we caught five keepers we had i mean we had an okay day for us it was our best tournament day fishing but it really opened our eyes to that to the there's a whole other we're good at the one thing that we doing. do but that's not the best thing to do. Not all the time. Right. No, there are. There's a time where it is the thing to do, but when when it's not the thing to do, you got to know what to do. You yeah. got to be able to. Yeah, you got to <laughs> yeah, be able exactly. to, to know. We're not good at. We didn't. We did the same thing all day. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, this is kind of working. Let's just stick with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, but well, we we kind of uh, did that. You know what we know from walleye fishing. Go fish the wind blown bays. That's what we did. Whenever the wind was blowing, 
we'd go in there and, and we did, we caught a lot of fish. Yeah. I mean, we just not, we definitely were not outclassed yeah, by the, the real fishermen. <laughs> yeah. how, how about like going back to like your pre-fishing for tournaments and stuff. And I think it translates a little bit to just pull you know, your average guy pulling up into a new lake and, and deciding to fish it. Are you starting in the shallow water? Are you starting, you know, when you're when you're looking for fish? I mean, other than just driving around and scanning and, and doing that, if you're actually, you know, me, I got four hours to fish on a Saturday because my wife is taking care of the kid, and I want to go out and catch some fish. Should I start deep? Should I start shallow? Or is it? A, it it all it all depends it? on the time of year and what you what you want out of it. Like the thing with deep fishing is you have to realize that. You're gonna, you're gonna spend eighty plus percent of your time not fishing. You're not, you're not gonna be, you're gonna be glued to your your graphs, figuring out where you need to make the that cast. one spot. But when you do that and you find that one spot, you can make the same cast a lot of times and catch a fish. Versus the other side of it is putting the trolling motor down and going down the bank, and yeah, you're fishing. You're fishing. Feels good. You feel, all right, I'm doing what I need to do. I got to go fi- I'm Put fishing. Put in a lot of work. And then all of a sudden you fished for your four hours and you caught one or two and they were 12 inches long. And then you're like, you saw me this out driving sucks. around <laughs> the four hours you were fishing. You saw me out driving around for three of them. And then you saw me fishing the last hour. And then you talked to me at the landing and I see I caught 20. Off that, one spot. That guy's got a big. boat with a 300 horsepower motor. He never goes faster than three miles. Yeah, that's what people are like, man, why do your boats have so many hours on them after a year? Well, because I'm driving around. I'm not just driving 70 mile an hour to a spot, putting the troll motor down and doing that all day. Like, I'm driving the boat around. I'd love to see your hour breakdown, your hour meter breakdown by yeah. RPM. I would bet you 90% all, yeah, of it is in that other under 1,000 RPM. And you're just studying that graph. Yeah, looking. And so. Looking. I mean, what do you what are you running for graphs now? Uh, I've got mainly hummingbird, okay. hummingbird, and then I've got a Garmin for live scope. Do you ha, has the live scope changed how you fish? Um, I wouldn't a little bit. I would just say it has made me a lot more efficient. Okay. I have a lot less wasted casts. So you're driving around looking for those spots, and you can put the live scope down and know, yes, there is a fish there, or or to a some degree. It depends on the structure. Depends on what's going on. It doesn't always work like that. Um, there is times where it does work like that, but not every time. If them fish are behind a stump or in a crib or in a weed bed, it's sometimes it's hard to see them. But the big thing that it helps with is being efficient with your cast. It's like I have the Humber 360 too, and that's great. But the problem with the Humber 360 is it's giving you old information. It's not current. It's not live. Yeah, like the thing is where it's like, okay, do you want to read a magazine or do you want to watch a movie? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how it is. Like, I can look at a picture of something, or I can watch it happen. That, that's so true. I never thought now of Now, they like- work hand in hand together. That's like the dream tool. But, you know, with that 360, say you're pointed at whatever target it is. Say it's a clump of weeds, right? And that thing pans around and gives you that image. Well, if your boat shifted two or three feet, now instead of that, clump of weeds being here it's over here but it's still showing it here and you have to wait for that thing to pan around to give you a current picture and i did it for years and i got decent at it and the other thing that you lose too is say i want to cast hit that clump of weeds and and i can see on my 360 that's 50 feet away and i cast 
Well, I don't know if I hit it or not until I actually touch it with my bait, but I might have to work my bait back 15 feet to realize, oh, crap, I missed it, then reel up. Well, with that live scope I pan, I cast, I watch my bait fall. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm, I didn't make it. I'm five feet short. I reel up quick, cast, okay, now I'm going to hit it. Or I want to fish the very left edge of it so I can, you know, tweak with my trolling motor and be like, okay, there's the heart of the weeds. There's the left edge. Okay, I got to cast right there, and I can cast and know I'm coming right down the edge of the weeds or whatever it is. So that's, yes, I ha- I've seen a lot of fish bite. I've seen some fish. I've seen a lot of that, but it's more about being efficient with your cast and wasting less time, wasting less cast. You know, if I take 10 casts of that live scope, there's 10 casts that were where they needed to be. Whereas with a 360, I might have had to take 20 casts to get the 10 good casts. So it's it's a good tool, but it's not a cure-all, and you have to know what you're doing with it. Oh, for sure, yeah. We had our first experience with it this last winter. Our buddy Mitch, you know Mitch, uh, he's a uh, he was a tournament walleye fisherman. I don't I'm not going to do it this year, uh, but he had uh, I think Panoptics, yeah. or Live Scope, whatever one is Live Scope. Live Scope, since he's probably had Live Scope. He's got Live Scope. We used it ice fishing, and it, I mean, it's fun. It makes ice fishing fun. really easy. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was like, oh, there's fish 25 feet that way. Drill, okay, yep, you're right over them. Drop it down. Your bait's right there. Oh, okay, your fun. fish is coming. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 one of them things that, you know, it helped me a lot to get to where I am. You know, I've had it for a couple of years now, and it's there were certain tournaments like Lake Hartwall, Lay Lake, where it was a huge factor. Like, I don't do as good as I did if I didn't have it. So, but once again, I'm the kind of guy where, you know, if you give me a laptop, I probably can turn it on and maybe pull up a Word document and type some stuff. <laughs> that's me. But that's about it. Now, you put that in a live scope in front of me, I'll figure it out. And I'll know what I'm doing with it. And it won't take me very long. Yeah. So, you have to be able to... You have to be very competent in the the electronics. You have to understand the process. Like I get asked all the time, you guys are probably, well, what do I got to have my settings on to get this? How do I get this thing set up to do this and that? It's like, I don't know. Every boat's different. Every situation's different. I know what it takes on my boat, but that doesn't mean it's going to be right on your boat. How many hours did it take you to get your boat? Where you want, I mean, you have to be out on the lake, right? You yeah, have to, you got to be out there. I'm constantly tweaking stuff, just different things on my graphs. It's, it's. But you need to know what every one of those settings. Well, not necessarily. You can't, you don't need to overthink it. Like a lot of people are like, well, what does this do? What does this do? What does this do? Like, don't worry about that. These are the three things you need to worry about. You need to worry about how far you're seeing. You need to worry about your sensitivity, your gain, and, you know, your depth range. That's about it. I mean, you don't need to go in and fine tune. You can, I guess, but I don't. You could spend half the day fun- mon- monkeying yeah, around, not, or you know, it, like on my side imaging, people are like, "Well, what do I got to have the this at or that?" Like, most of my stuff is on um, the factory settings. I'll go in and tweak a little bit, but it's like if the image is good, then don't don't worry about it. Just look for stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. You, you've got you've like got that. the electronics, use them. Yeah. Drive around and find the fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, people always look, I want to see that perfect, you know, you see the demo yeah. mode. I want to I don't I don't see the perfect arc. Well, mm-hmm. that's a demo mode. Well, like, and then this people don't understand, you know, which that's 2D sonar, which is 
I, I don't even remember the last time I've looked at it with down imaging now. And so, I mean, if you know what you're doing with down imaging and side imaging, 2D sonar is not as functional as it used to be, other than if you're actually vertically fishing over something and you want to see your bait. But once again, once you get live scope, you won't need that. So, but yeah, selling that stuff for as long as I have. Well, why does it show? I don't get that little, that little boomerang. Like, well, do you understand how the sonar cone works? Well, no, but that's what shows on there. It's like, okay, and you try to explain. I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into getting that perfect shape of an arc. It's sure. not easy. You know what I mean? It has to be the ideal scenario to have that fish come through the cone to get that perfect thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. it's a matter of being able to decipher a partial arch or a straight line because you're not moving. You're not going to get an arch. You know, yeah. How thick is it? What color is it? Is it wavy it? out? Is it? it no, there's a it, lot it, of different <laughs> things that go into it. You know, well, I just want to show the fish symbols. Okay, <laughs> that ain't going to do you any good. Because <laughs> yeah. every, you know, it, it's, the, it's... That clump of weeds that comes through, you're going to have a fish. It's going to show fish. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's just one of them things that there's cert, certain people that get it and understand that you don't just put it on your boat and you catch fish. You have to know. I wish what, that's how it works. You have to know what you're doing <laughs> with it, and you have to take the time. And it comes down to you of saying, "My wife let me go fishing for four hours. I want to catch fish." Generally, those aren't the guys that figure out electronics because when they get only get four hours a week, they want to fish. They don't want to they look want to at their casting, locator. Doing, yeah. Right. That's that, and it's hard to get over that mindset. And some of the tournament guys too. I only got one day to practice. I can't go drive around. Okay, well. Just pay your entry fee then. I probably won't see you at the next one. Well, I'll see you, but just make sure you pay your entry fee. Yeah. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's, and I guess that's, a, a, it's a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior yeah. to, to use your electronics. I mean, you know, you, you see some of these, these boats that have five, six screens. And, and if you can have all the electronics in the world, if you're not using them to the, the most, you're not, you're going to be unhappy with them. Yeah. So yeah. what do you, what are you running now for, um, for like a trolling motor. Cause there's a whole, like, you know, up until like three years ago, there was really only two brands, mm -hmm. motor guide and Minn Kota. Now there's uh Garmin's entered the game. Yep. Are you still running a, I still run a, a Minn Kota tracks. Have yep. you tried any of the other new ones? No, I really haven't had a reason to. Okay. Um, I've been pretty happy with the Minn Kota stuff I've, I've had. Um, I just haven't had a reason to yet. Have you heard anything good about the, I think it's the Ghost and the Force, right? I've heard a lot of good things about the Garmin one. Really? A lot of good things about that. The the Lowrance one, I mean, I've had some people say they really like it, but they're also the people that they're get Lowrance paid guys. by them, yeah. you know? So it's, it's, I think they're all probably good, but the thing with the Minn Kota that I like is they're easy to service. You know, if I have a problem, I can go to Shields and get it fixed. You know, we're, we're, sure. yeah. we're, where are you going to bring a motor guide? Where are you going to bring a Lowrance? Where are you going to bring a Garmin? I don't know where. Do you, Good you, question. No you're idea. in the, you're yeah. in the world. I don't, and you don't, I don't know. know. Other than like at these tournaments, you know, they have service trailers there. But to the average guy who buys a 3,400-hour troll motor and something breaks on it. He's down for a week Well, what do two. you do? You got to call a company and try to get the part. And yeah, you get the part. Well, now you got to figure out how to fix it. Whereas with Minn Kota, it's like I bring it in to John Berg at the service shop and he fixes it. He, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. or even you, you, you know, they've been around long enough where you were at a tournament and you had your, your pedal go bad, right? Yeah, yeah. And you were able to fix it, you and... Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I fixed the one thing and so, yeah, I just am more familiar with them. 
and I, I'm just more comfortable with them, I guess. I, I haven't had a reason to switch. Do you think you'll see, you know, with the kind of the change in, in electronics, their advancement, do you, do you see any of that stuff being banned from tournament fishing? No. No? Are, are most of the pros out there running like a live scope? No, because that's the thing is you get up to that. Like I, sh- I, I shake my head. I can't believe I know personally know people that for a couple of years now I've been, you know, they're sponsored by Humminbird. They're sponsored by, you know, Lawrence. Well, so Lawrence has got their own deal now too. But for a couple of years there, it's like, dude, you are costing yourself money by not running that technology. But, you know, these guys that get paid by, you know, Humminbird, they don't have any. They don't have it. Yeah. They can't run it. And some of the guys last year just went and bought a Garmin. Patrick Walters was up with Humminbird. He said, I can't compete without, I have to have a Garmin. So he basically broke his contract. First tournament he fishes, Saint, you know, uh, Lake Hartwell, South Carolina, wins it. Wins Lake Fork for Texas Fest. I mean, he won 160 grand right there. It's like, yeah. I mean, these guys, it's like, I can't believe all that, these that guys. That really surprises that, me that you're, I mean, it makes sense because of well, that. And I don't know, like I said, I'm a peon, so I don't know. Maybe they're paying them guys enough money to where it doesn't matter. But I could, if you took it off my boat right now and said, you got to go fish a tournament. On Would Lake, you feel naked without I, it? If they, depending on the, you know, like this year, honestly, so far, maybe a couple tournaments I really needed it, but. Like if they said you gotta go fish a tournament on Lake Hartwell in September and you can't use your live scope, I would say, I no, I'm not going. I'm not gonna go because you you're not gonna you're not gonna win unless you get on some crazy shallow and get lucky. Sha- yeah, you come across some other obscure thing, but there's just certain things you you're at a major disadvantage, you know. And I, there's one guy I know real well, been with Hummingbird for a long time. He's been trying to make it on the elite now for a couple of years. And last year, I mean, some of them tournaments, I'm like, dude, you are not going to, you, you're not, I don't know do- what you're doing. I mean, I don't care if they gave you three low, I don't care. Like you are at a disadvantage. You your are, winnings could buy you, you 10 yes. of those. Yes. So that's the thing. Like when some of these guys, when Humminbird actually gets their stuff together and actually gets their product out, you know, some of them guys, like your your Brandon Polinick is the one I really think of who is unbelievable without it. You know, you get that in his hands, it's going to be crazy. But he can't use it because he's Humminbird, you know, is his boyfriend. Clearly he's doing something right. I mean, oh, Polinick he's, is... He's in, unbelievable. He's, he's unbelievable. He's, he's a great fisherman, good person, and just really good at the social media side of it, sponsor side of it. He's got it figured out. But um, just from a competitive side, it's like, man... I don't, I don't I, know. I feel the same way running a boat without any grass. Like if I'm on my family's like pontoon boat or like speedboat, these are lakes that I've been on my whole life. So I know where everything is. But if I go to a body of water and I, I see all these people dumping their boats into Lake Wissota for the first time and that lake is riddled with rocks everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know how you make it around that lake without hitting a sandbar yeah. or a rock bar. Well, it's or the same the thing. comfort level. It's yeah. the, comfortable you know, when side imaging first came out, you know, I was one of the first ones in this area to buy it. And people were like, that's stupid. I don't need that. That's cheating. That's just you. I don't even, I don't even know what I'm looking at when I'm looking at that. Now all of a sudden it's like side imaging is the standard. It's not even like a special thing. It's not even like a, you got to sell someone on it. It's like, I mean, 
if it doesn't have thing. it, they're surprised. Yeah, like what we sell at the store, there's maybe 10% of them that don't have it. It's like the standard now. That's what this. That's what LiveScope is going to be. I mean. I was sold. It, the one time Tim and oh, I ran yeah. it, I was like, I was. I got home and I told my wife, I yeah. said, "We, I'm going to go buy this. Yeah. yeah it's, she's going to be really disappointed yeah, when that happens. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's expensive. It's a lot of money, but, you know, it's one of them things where, once again, you have to know what you're doing with it, but it can, it's, it it, can help you a lot. And it can just help you capitalize on the time that you have. Yeah, whether you're bass fishing, wildlife. I mean, if, like, fishing. if you crappie fished, I mean, it would be unfair. Like you would, Talk to Will you Helm. would catch. I think that's why Wilhelm. I mean, he's obviously a great fisherman, but yeah. he has said that that has made him a a much more efficient. Yeah, you don't wait. I mean, you see him. Right. You watch him come up and eat your bait. I mean, it's like you get. It's. I tell that to all these guys that come in. You know, when I used to work more and be like, "You, you bluegill fish or crappie fish." And this is. You might this, as well skip all the other locators yeah, and just this, get that one. This, if you can afford it, this is a major advantage. And I've never sold them somebody and they've come back like, oh, you were lying. They're all like, holy crap. This, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Awesome. I, it was. It was unbelievable. It was. It. We, were, really we were awesome. walking around. The first night that my buddy got there, we were like, oh, let's go out and night fish for a little bit. So we went out and fished. And we fishing in a bay that I've fished, you know, forever. It's just a big bowl for crappies. And he he went right to the center of it, right next to another shack. <laughs> Looked around. He goes, "Oh, all these idiots are out here. Not, there's no fish around." And he's Nothing like, "Okay, here. 50 yards that way, there's fish." So we he, we drill right over the top of them. We're catching fish. I'm sure these guys have been there. They've had their permanents there for months. Yeah. And yeah. they had been maybe caught 20 fish. And we come first five minutes. We're catching fish. Oh, oh, oh. And then he's like, "Oh." All right, they're gone. Let's move. Time to yeah. move. Time yeah. to follow them. Yeah. And it was like we were we walked the lake. We we're just you know we were drinking beers, whatever, walking around and drilling a hole every you know 150 yards, and he put it down. No nope, fish. Keep ah, going. Let's keep going. <laughs> he do a, he do a 360, and nothing around. Nope. Okay, on to the next uh, one. Said, I'm, I'm pretty convinced there are no fish in this lake. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was. Uh, I I agree with you. I mean, if you're at that level and you're handicapping yourself, I I I, I mean, unless you're getting a monster payday from the competitor i i I don't see why you wouldn't do it yeah i just it there's the business side of it's something i'm still learning too because i think a lot of them guys are pretty loyal and they'll they'll wait till you know it comes out and whatever financially if they can do it good for them yeah and honestly some of them tournaments you know you can you know i think uh like jeff gustin won on fort loudon fishing smallmouth and he was just using his old school 2D sonar on his hummingbirds, and he beat all the guys with live scope. Grant, he was the only one to figure that out. But I mean, you could still do it, and you can still be successful without it. But you know, it's a bit, it's an advantage. You either need to know the lake, like you know, have experience on that lake and know kind of a pattern, or get lucky. I yeah. mean, I guess you know, I'm sure that the guy you were talking about probably knew what he was doing. Well, but. he did, he did. He knew how to fish that way, but I think I I think he was fortunate to find the area that he found because he was the only one to find it. Yeah, he was the only one to figure that bite out. That's why he dominated it. So, um, yeah, it's just one of them deals that eventually it will be the standard. Period. Yeah. So I don't think they'll ban it. There's too much money in it for these. You know, they're not going to sure. ban something that makes it better make, and makes, makes it more competitive. Yeah, probably. And, and like you know these. The people at that level, um, 
they just have to learn everybody. It'll be an even playing field. Everybody will have it. Did still. I see that some Berkeley baits got banned? That was an April Fool's thing. That was an April yeah, Fool's. I, I got, saw got, it. Got and I, 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 it kind of got, got me a little bit. I came across and I was like, oh, I know, you know Berkeley does. They do that set and fuse bait better than anybody. Yeah. So I was like, well, man, that's, well, that's, that's got to be jarring. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, Berkeley is the title sponsor of. Yeah, so good like, little, wow, wow, that's good, a bold move. Good little marketing ploy, though. <laughs> yeah, no it, well, it definitely it made me think about it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what are you running right now for a, a rig? What's your What's your boat? I've got a 2021 Skeeter FXR 21. That's awesome boat. Same boat I had last year, just a year newer. Alrighty. How many rods you got in it? A lot. How many? Yeah. So, how many <laughs> rods do you bring to a tournament? Like in your uh, boat at, at any time? To- I'll have. Between thirty and forty. Okay. You know, obviously, I don't use them all, and I don't have reels on them all, because the thing is, when I travel, most of the time I'm going from event to event, so I, you know, I might only need these fifteen rods for this one, but then the next one I need these ones, so I still got to bring them all. You yeah. Know what I mean. Yeah. How many rods do you have in your like when you go out when you launch? And you're fishing for, like, you know, first day of a tournament. How many rods will you have rigged in your boat that you plan to use? Well, it depends. I mean, anywhere from 10 to 20. Wow. I mean, it, might, it just depends on what you're doing. Yep. You know, like the Sabine River, I probably needed three. But, really? You know, other times I might need 10. Yeah. I might need, I mean, you know, I, I like to rig up for every scenario because I think that's the downfall with a lot of people is they'll rig up rods or they won't rig up rods because they're like i probably am not going to do that but then you come across the scenario where you need to make that one cast with a frog and you don't have it out and then you say i'm not taking it out well that one cast is might be the cast could have been a five pounder could have been a big one or i didn't have a whatever you know a square bill out even though i never plan on really fishing it but i could think in my mind there's three places i might throw it well, if you throw it in one of those three places and catch one, that's a big deal. So that's how I always approach stuff. I mean, because people are like, why do you have so many rods out? Because I might use them all. I might not, but it doesn't hurt other than having clutter out. I right? mean, yeah. I mean, how many times have you How many times have you won tournaments by bringing that one rod out that you weren't sure if you were going to bring, toss it, get one good, you know, you get a, a couple. Lot. Good- a lot of them. Now, when you're rigging rods like that, you say you got 20 different rods and 20 different baits. How are you choosing your colors? I mean, is, is color a big thing, do you uh, think? I'm pretty basic on that when it comes to, like, plastics and jigs in general. It's it's black, you know, hues, black, blue, green pumpkin. That's You're not uh, painting your own stick baits and you're not doing no custom i mean colors. i'll use dye a little bit like chartreuse or orange dye for tails and claws sometimes but generally it's not i don't get too into that like it's like if you said you can only have three colors it'd be black blue green pumpkin watermelon red i'd be fine everywhere so I went. you wouldn't feel like no I, okay. i'd be fine everywhere i want you think if the, if you've got the right presentation is, co- is color a deciding factor? Well, it can. I mean, it can Depending be. on the water There's, Depending type on how and... clear the water is and all that stuff. Um, is there a general rule on, okay, dark lake, dark bait? Type? Yeah, I mean, generally, like, in dirtier water, you want to use your blacks because it'll, you know, they'll be able to see them better. Clear water, you want to use your more natural stuff, your watermelons, green pumpkins, but... Um, there's always, exce- I mean, there's always exceptions to the Cause, rule. Because I always find myself like, 
okay, I'll, I'll go skip a dock or something. I got green pumpkin on, and I there should be a fish. I feel like there should be a fish there, but I didn't catch anything. It's like, oh, I should have had a blue one on or something. Maybe yeah, I'd, have ca- I'd have caught it if I had that blue one. Yeah, yeah exactly. And there, you know? I, I think a lot of that is just what you're confident in. I think about my one partner who actually now he's going to start fishing a lot with my other partner because I'm not going to be around, but Mike McAvoy. I started fishing with him. You know, he would always use different colors. Like he would always use one particular color of a jig, and I would always use a black and blue one. And it's like, and we would both catch them. But like in his mind, this sure. is the one to use. Sure. And in my mind, like we're fishing the same stuff. <laughs> you know, it's more what you in your mind. Like if there's two colors out, there's two colors sitting there, and one of them you have more confidence You're in, pick you that pick one that up. one. Yep. yep. I mean, and that's like something him when we've fished together in these tournaments or even if it's just out for fun okay you throw the chartreuse one i'll throw the blue one or something like that let's see which color is making making the difference you know and 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 i feel like don't ever have the exact same yeah Yeah. i mean i think that's a rule unless it's you get something dialed in unless you're dialed i mean that's a rule of any i would say that's like the rule we've always lived by until we have like a pattern use something different Mm -hmm. figure it out because mm-hmm. yeah. if you're fishing the same thing, what's the point in fishing yeah. the same boat together? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, like he'll be up front, he'll be frogging. I'm coming behind with a swim jig or whatever it may be, and, and just trying to figure out that pattern. And yeah. Tim's coming just, behind with a bird's nest and cursing at me. No, yeah. <laughs> you're the cause of the bird's nest. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, there's a couple different types types of tournaments, tournament formats that are out there. There, there's like the major league fishing format where every fish gets weighed and there's a couple different things that MLF does now, but um, what was your decision with going with the traditional, I would say traditional uh, call Bassmaster uh, platform over the MLF platform? That's just the way I've fished is fishing for quality fish. You know, I've never been a numbers goal. I mean, I like to catch a lot of fish, but in a tournament setting, I've always been, just better fishing for quality fish. I might only catch five or six fish a day, but they're going to be nice ones. And that's how I like to fish. I don't, it doesn't intrigue me as much to go try to catch 30 pound and a half fish. And honestly, I don't even, I mean, I don't like watching that. I want to see people catch big fish. So I've just never, I actually fished one tournament that format on Gull Lake in Northern Minnesota a few years ago. And I didn't like it. It was super stressful, and I just didn't. It just made me fish different. different yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And I just didn't care for it. The one I can remember was they fished out of La Crosse, Wisconsin, and Hackney was in the lead right away. Yeah. He caught like before noon. He caught twenty four pound and a half fish. Yeah. And he was like twenty pounds ahead of everyone else. The bite turned off, and he couldn't catch another fish. And I think he fell out of the top seven yeah. or eight. Uh huh. I mean, he caught maybe a couple more fish, but yeah. it wasn't. It was those one and a half, two pounders, uh-huh. and then everyone started catching the big bass, and uh-huh. and and so it kind of goes to that. Is that you know obviously Greg Hackney's a fantastic fisherman, but um, you know that that the format we're fishing for big fish rather than numbers. That's what intrigues you. Yeah, and that and then just the overall the organizations bass as an organization has you know. They're, they're the leader in the bass industry and just in the tournament industry in general. Um, and I can tell you now 
even in the opens or at the nation level, um, especially at the elite level, they treat their, I, I don't know if you want to say employee or whatever we are, they treat their fishermen really well. They go the extra mile to watch out for, for us and take care of us. So that's a big deal to me too. Uh, where the other one, and once again, I don't, I've never been in that organization, but there's a lot of stuff that has happened where that may not necessarily be the case. That's why you're starting to see the shift now. You're starting coming to see back. them guys coming back or trying to come back because I think a lot of the stuff that was maybe promised to them or pitched to them isn't necessarily what it was. So I think a lot of people are regretting doing it. Obviously, a lot of them guys are. I mean, it's still a good you know, it's entertaining. I mean, it is, and there's still and there's still money in it. There's still good money in it, um, but it's just. I think that the shift has, you know, it's swinging around the other way now. So yeah, in my opinion, bass has has all the momentum now. I mean, when you think of bass fishing tournaments, the Bass Master Classic is what. Yeah, it's the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. I mean, that's better own. All the big like names forever. come, and they all the big names try to fish. I mean, they. I would say the majority of the big names, even the MLF ones, try to get qualified for the classic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that is the Super Bowl. That's what everybody knows. You know, like you ask, even like the Forest Wood Cup back when it was FLW, you know, it was a big tournament. But it's like, well, you think, well, who won that two years ago? You ain't going to find anybody that really knows. Where the classic, it's like, yeah, man, I know. I know a lot of the guys who won that because that's what everybody pays attention to. That's like if you win that, you have made it. And fit, I mean, if you win that, oh yeah, you you're a household. You you will become a household name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a big deal to win that. But where is the classic this year? Uh, it's on Lake Ray Roberts in Texas. And when? So, June. Have June. you fished that lake? Have you? Can you do any pre fishing yet? I've been down there quite a bit. Yeah. How does it look? How how do you? How do you I do you, mean, I like you know. Originally, it was supposed to be in March. So I had gone down there in January and spent some time, and then they got moved to June. So it completely changes probably a lot of things. So I actually went down there again for like another five days just because of some of the other stuff that got canceled. And I like the look of the lake. I mean, it's it's a lot of timber. There's a lot. It looks good. There's big ones in there. Are you is your are you are you pretty confident going into that tournament? No, I don't know. I won't know until I get down there and practice. I mean, I pre-practice, but I don't know. I mean, it's one of them deals where it's going to be different than when I was there. You know, I may have made some predictions and did some, you know, a lot of different things that may come into play. And if they come into play, then I might be okay. Yeah. If I mean, I have no idea. That's the thing. When you can't practice for a month ahead of time, you, I mean, a lot of stuff changes. That's what oh, you can't sure. pre-fish for that first that month. Yeah, so up? it's a 28-day cutoff. Okay. So after okay. that 28 days, you can't go down there until the official practice days. Yeah. How many practice days do you normally get for tournaments? Three. Three. Practices. You get three. You get three fishing days. You get or three, three. Three practice days, and the, the classic. I think we get four. Okay. So it's not a lot. Um. But you'll see Pat out there driving around. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's what his graphs? What tournaments do you have coming up? I leave for Neely Henry Lake in Alabama on Sunday. That tournament starts next Thursday. Okay. And then I have Gunnersville uh, a couple weeks after that. That'll be a fun. Gunnersville is fun. 
That's a well, bad. it can be. I was down there a couple weeks ago, and it was not fun, but hopefully it's better. That's a, that's home to a lot of professional yeah. bass yeah. fishermen. Yep, it's a good lake, and I fished. I've done all right, and then one I fished down there, but we'll see. I don't know. I have no idea the way my year's been going. It's kind of going to be a coin flip, but uh, I don't know. Hopefully the fish are biting for you. I hope I can figure something out, but. Yeah. I'm I'm confident you can, you'll be able to figure something yeah, out. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. So where can people fo- uh, find you? If they want um, to go out and follow you and, and, and search for you, where can, where can people follow you? You can go onto the Facebook or Instagram, Patch Lopper Fishing, both of them. Um, I do have some stuff on YouTube, not a lot yet, but um, I'm working on that. So Facebook and Instagram are the two two main places where I post stuff. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, any other questions no, for I'm, Pat? I'm good. I mean, I I know that I learned stuff. I, I know that I learned that I need to be just more confident in my electronics. Use them. I would say that's, if you want bit one big takeaway, if you have a boat, have, a, have some electronics on it, use your electronics. Yeah. Trust them. You know, they don't lie. They, they're not showing you something that isn't there or something that, you know, shouldn't be there. If, if the fish are there and you have your electronics set up right, it will paint a better picture of what's going on under the water and, sure. and put you in a position to be successful in the limited time. I'm not a professional fisherman. I don't have a lot of time to fish. Uh, I know Tim doesn't. Pat probably fishes far more than we do. Um, and he can and he can use his electronics and he knows how to do all that stuff. But if you're just the average guy and or girl and and you've only got a couple hours in the lake, use your electronics. You'll be happier. You'll be more likely to be successful. Uh, and I think that would be the one big takeaway. Yeah, and I think and, um, for me a, a big takeaway was don't be afraid to switch techniques. Don't be afraid to start trying to fish deeper than what you're normal. I mean, that for me is is huge. Just don't be afraid to try something new. I just found a new spot that I won't, ca- another spot that I can't catch fish now. So I can't catch fish on the shore right, and now exactly. I won't be able to catch fish off the shore. Yeah, but once, you, <laughs> once you get, once you figure out something off the shore, you'll want to do that. You'll want to do that more. I catch bigger. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, we catch a lot of little fish up in the pads or, you know, the occasional three or four pounder, but we're never consistently finding those bass that the professionals are seeing or (laughs) what pat's posting on instagram seven pounders or eight pounders like now that would be a once in a lifetime fish for me and it seems like if you go to pat's instagram page you know every every almost every tournament he's pre-fishing he finds one one big girl down there one to put on the scale caught some big ones this year good well go out follow pat uh keep an eye on him on the on the bass master you can go to their website uh mm-hmm. during the during the tournaments and, and is it a live leaderboard that they put bass track yeah yep, the yep, they do bass track and then they do live coverage too on fs1 and on the website okay. will you, do, awesome. will you, i mean do you foresee yourself having a, a camera boat like following you or is it kind of is it, does it kind of go by like it depends on how good you're doing how and good you're if doing you like if you the first day you know, they'll go with someone that has history there that they think is going to catch them. Sure. So, okay. yeah, probably, you probably won't be seeing me on that. <laughs> well, we hope to. We, <laughs> we hope, hope to. to. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that, doing good, that so. one uh, couple of weeks ago, that tournament you were doing well on before you had the boat issues, I was, I was expecting to see a boat following you, and then all of a sudden, you know, I saw your, you hadn't, like, hadn't caught a fish in, since 10 a.m. And I was like, man, that's weird. That's weird. Yeah. And then you put out on Instagram, oh, I got a new boat, had some battery problems. Yeah. Yeah, that sucked. So, I mean, hey, that if it can happen to, to if it can happen to Pat, it can happen to any of us. And I guess that's a testament to Pat and having a good service center and having a good place that can take care of you. And 
and uh, that's what this Skeeter boat, the the boat Center has done yeah, for you. The boat Center's been been great. They they help me out a lot with that kind of stuff and kind of drop what they're doing to take care of my problems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, they do that yeah. for anybody though. Good. I mean, them guys take care of stuff down there. They're, it's a great place to do business. Good. Yeah. Any other any other thing you want to plug, Pat? If you're, is there anything else you want to plug? Well, I mean, Shields, you know, Shields is by far my biggest supporter. And then St. Croix Rods. And then the other one I, I need to talk about is, is Wolfridge Manufacturing, which th- that he was the first person when I said I wanted to do it. This is when I was going to quit and do the opens. Chris Wolf, you know, a friend of mine who owns yeah. the company, he was the first one to say, I'll help you out. I didn't even ask him. He just offered That's to help me incredible. out. That's pretty incredible. And, uh, he makes high-end commercial-grade wood splitters that he sells all over the U.S., and he sells a lot of them, and it's a very good product. So um, he's been an inspiration to me, his story of what he built his company into from basically one machine out of his garage into a very large business. Uh, it it kind of, you know, fuels my fire to, like, I can I can succeed at what I'm trying to do, too. Awesome. So, does, yeah. he have, awesome. does he have a website or? I don't know if he has a website. He does a lot of stuff on Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's just a his. It's just a super cool story, and the stuff he builds is unbelievable. What I've gone and checked them out. About. I've, I, you know, just looking at Pat's page and seeing the the sponsors. I have gone to his. I know he has a page. I think it's Wolfridge. Wolfridge M- Manufacturing. Matt, manufacturing. Yeah. yeah. I I've gone to his web. I mean. His products look phenomenal. It's crazy. I don't need a wood splitter no. like that, but it has made me want to get yeah, one. He sells a lot of them on the East Coast, you know, okay. to like places that sell firewood or just people sure. who yeah. that's what they do is burn wood or whatever. And uh, like I said, I, I've known Chris for a long time. He used to fish in our club tournament. He's one of them guys where he's super talented at like welding and fabricating. If you ever needed something fixed, he's the guy you'd call. And he kind of went through some tough times and, and then all of a sudden this happened and I've just kind of been following and it's just, it's unbelievable what he's turned that into. And I haven't Good talked to him. him for a little while now because he's so busy and I'm so busy, but he, he was the very first person that, that offered help to me. And that's, that's awesome. a big deal to me. And I've got for a lot sure. of other really good sponsors too, but um, Chris's Wolfridge is is something that's special to me anyways. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. That's Go awesome to hear. Yeah. Well, good luck the rest of the season, and uh, we hope to see you at the top of the Classic for sure. Yeah. Well, I'll too. wait for yeah. that boat to pull through the stadium yeah. with you holding, you know, two six-pounders. and That would be good. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That'd be good. I think that's something we can all hope for. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Pat, thanks. Thanks, uh, Pat. And if you want to, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at OBH Outdoors. Uh, that's our page. Uh, we'll have if more you guys con- have any uh, viewer feedback, feel free to email us at averageoutdoorsmanpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Sounds good, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you.